שיעור 181. Good afternoon. Thank you all very, very much for coming. I'm going to be starting this morning with one of my all-time favorite prakim, actually, in Tanakh. Even though, for those of you that are uh, regulars, know that I say that way too often for it to actually be true. Um, we're going to start with... You can hear me, right? I didn't think... Okay, one second. This is what they warned me about. Okay. Better? All right, if I get super uh, dramatic and move my head away, just throw something at me. Okay. So we're going to be starting with one of my favorite prakim in Tanakh. Um, and I have, there are a couple of source sheets, but majority of the sources we're going to be looking at, you'll be using your Tanakh source. So I'll be saying the sources ahead in Hebrew. Um, we're going to be starting with Yirmiyahu Yudhet, Jeremiah chapter 29. Uh, and Yirmiyahu gives this nivuah. Gives this nivuah in 597 BCE, just after the first wave of exile are leaving. And he says as follows, you have it in Parak Chavtet, he begins in Pasuk Aleph, Ele divrei hasefer asher shalach yirmiyahu He addresses the fresh exiles. And he says, Pasuk Dalet, if you jump down, Ko amar Hashem tzvakot. He's speaking to the people that God makes clear he has exiled to Babel. And he says, The first thing he tells them, and again, if we step back and get into the minds of the people that were being marched out of the land, the people that were leaving the land in 597 and then subsequently in the second wave in 586 BCE had no idea what exile, or more specifically, what survival in exile looks like. They had never been in exile since the days of Yoshua bin Nun, and so it rested on Yirmiyahu and Avi's shoulders to outline for them how they are going to survive in exile. And he outlines both physical survival, but as we're going to see, and perhaps I think even more importantly, spiritual survival as well. And so he says in the first pasuk, he tells them to build houses, and he tells them to plant vineyards. And in pasuk vav, he says, He tells them to marry off their children, which is another way of saying, get comfortable, you're going to be here for a while. And then he goes on, and he outlines what our relationship with our host country is meant to look like. And the thousands of years of galut that Jews have experienced and the way in which we choose not to maintain an antagonistic stance against our host country, but to try to sort of inculcate what their rules into our lives is really, I think, based primarily on this pasuk initially. You should want the host country in which you live to be one of peace, because Yermiel makes very clear a reality that we all know too well. It is only when our country is at peace that we as exiles experience the extension of it. And then he goes on and he says, Ki Hashem ki Hashem reminds them, perhaps most importantly, that there's an end. That this reality that they're about to encounter is finite. That it's not going to go on forever, but that just like he took them out, he will return them. And then, of course, he tells them something also 
unprecedented, and we only appreciate how unprecedented this is when we get back into the minds of temple Jews. When temple Jews want to encounter God, when they want to have a religious experience, they go up to your Shalayim, they enter the Beit HaMikdash, they perform sacrifices and all of the other rituals associated with temple worship. But now they're going out into a foreign land and their temple is burnt down. And so for the first time in history, your meow has to say to them, Ukratem oti v'halachtem v'hitpalaltem elai v'shamati aleichem. Wherever you are in the world, Hashem is telling them, you don't need to be in Yerushalayim. Wherever you call for me, I will hear you. And he goes on, If you look for me, I will find you. Okay? Yirmiyahu outlined for the Jewish people in 597 BCE what survival in exile looks like. And he goes on and he makes one more important thing clear. And I think perhaps existentially speaking, this might be the most important point he makes. In the ancient world, if your temple is destroyed and your land is overcome and you're routed out, that meant one very, very simple thing. It meant your God had been destroyed. It meant that the God of the enemy was more powerful than your God. Hashem says one of the most important things to the people that were exiled in Pasuk Yudalid. Hashem says as follows. All the places that I exiled you to, I will bring you back from. Hashem proves through the words of Yirmiyahu. That B'nai Yisrael's exile is not a sign of his weakness, it's not a sign of his defeat. It is an ongoing sign of Hashem's ongoing interaction and involvement in history on a universal scale. Okay. I use this parak even though it has very little to do with what we're going to be talking about today other than giving, providing the background. Um, because I think that Yirmiyahu is one of the most phenomenal examples of a voice that was ignored in his time but whose points and whose lessons and whose ideas became so profoundly impactful on our collective Jewish thought after the fact that it's really only in retrospect that we can appreciate the import of his words. When Yermiel was alive, he was thrown in jail. There was a ransom on his head. Kings tore up things he wrote and threw them into the fire. And yet 200, 300, 400 years later, it is the very words Yermiel spoke to a very unreceptive audience that enabled the Jewish people to survive. What I'm going to be talking about today, actually, is I think one of the most interesting figures in Jewish history. And as we're going to see, one of the reasons that I find the Ezra, that we're going to be talking about, so interesting, is because the way that Ezra is understood, in a similar vein to Yirmiyahu, during his day, and the way that, you're, and the way that Ezra is understood in retrospect through the eyes, particularly of Chazal, and then, of course, it goes without saying, by extension, by us, is... Somewhat, there's somewhat of a dissonance between the two. Okay? We're going to start looking at your source sheets. You have source one, and I just brought, there is a huge, um, really, storehouse of Midrashim on Ezra, on Ezra's halachic innovations, on his cultural innovations, on the way that Ezra changed the script of the Torah so people could read it when there was a new Hebrew script. Um, I brought two very quick examples about how Chazal view Ezra and I think you'll see I brought these examples for the shock factor. Source one, who Ezra? 
Alami Bavel. This is Ezra, and it's referring to Ezra that took them up from, that went up from Bavel. Ela milamed she'ilu haya Aharon kayam. And it's teaching us that had Aharon and Ezra been contemporaries, haya gadol, Ezra haya gadol mimenu gedora. Okay, now Aaron is the obvious, is the example because Aharon was a Kohen gadol, and as we're going to see, Ezra was as well. And so the, the, here what we're seeing is that the Midrash Shmuel is going out and saying that had Ezra and Aharon been contemporaries, Ezra would have superseded Aharon HaKohen in his day. Okay, next one I'm going to jump to, if you see there are bolded lines, we're just going to read that one in the middle where there is Tanya Rabiosi Omer. And again, if the other one was shocking, perhaps this might be even more so. Ra'ui haya Ezra. Shetinatin Torah al yado li Israel ilmale kidmo Moshe. Okay, so now it's not just Ezra and Aharon up one against the other, but had Ezra been alive in the desert when God gave the Torah to Israel, Ezra would have come down from Harsina. So these are two startling Midrashim. Okay? But again, as I mentioned, I think what's perhaps even more startling is not just the way in which Ezra becomes this sort of mythical figure in rabbinic thought, but if we actually look inside at Sefer Ezra, one of the things we notice is that Ezra in his day really wrestled with the people that he was trying to to lead. And there was not a lot of acceptance, certainly it was not a unanimous acceptance of the leadership, of his choices, of the decisions he made. And then if we look a little bit further on, even beyond the immediate period of Ezra himself, if we look at some of the other Second Temple literature, sometimes we get a sense of how popular books were based on how often they're referenced by other extra-biblical uh, extra literature, Second Temple works, things we found in the Qumran caves, etc. For example, Megillat Esther, we know, right, aside from the fact that the, that the Gemara talks about whether or not it had a questionable status, but in terms of references, in terms of attributions, the amount of times Svarim are mentioned or quoted in other Second Temple literature is often a very good indication of how popular it was towards the end of the Second Temple period. And based on what we know of Ezra, it really was not considered authoritative the way that some of the other Svarim were. And so the question that we want to look at today, really, which I think is a very important question, is why is it that in his day and in the few centuries after, Ezra, and again, I'm going to be conflating slightly the book of Ezra, but also more broadly speaking, the historical personality of Ezra was not as popular as we might imagine. And yet then there's this huge gap, and he's revered and put on this almost unprecedented pedestal in the mind of, of Chazal. So I think that in order really to understand things, first of all, I want to just give a very, very quick background because I keep talking Ezra, Ezra. Um, the work itself of Ezra Nehemiah is one of the few Second Temple works that we have that's incorporated in Tanakh. It was written about 150 years after B'nai Israel got back from Galut Bavel. For those of you that remember, I'm just going to give you a little timeline up here. And for those of you who know me, you know I draw timelines in the air with my fingers, which is totally useless. 559, Cyrus takes over, conquers the Persian, uh, conquers the Babylonians, and sets up what's known as the Achaemenid dynasty. And then if we move forward in 539, he gives us Jews, but also 
all of the nations that had been exiled by the Babylonians permission to go back to their native lands and build temples to their native gods. For those of you who have not been to the British Museum, there is a little glass case in the middle of the British Museum upstairs, I think it's on the second floor if I recall correctly, that has what's known as the Cyrus Cylinder. It's the size of a football, and it's one of the most important remaining artifacts from the ancient world when it comes to our history. It was that Cyrus Cylinder that allowed us to go back and to continue our experience in the land the second time around. 539, he allows us to go back, and that's the first wave of returnees. And they're led by Zerubbabel, Sheshbazar, and Yeshua Kohen Gadol. And one of the things that was partially Persian imperial policy was to send back both a political figurehead and also a religious figurehead. And so you had Zerubbabel, who we're going to see was the grandson of the last of the Davidic kings. And then we have a priest who can function, who could be one of the functionaries in the temple. That's the first wave of return. And during that first wave of return, essentially the main task of that first wave, as we understand it, was to rebuild the temple and to reinstitute the Kohanim in their former place and to set life back up in Jerusalem. That's the first wave. Second wave doesn't happen until the mid 400s BCE, about 100 years later, under the leadership of Nehemiah, who was the governor, again, a political. And Ezra, who was a Kohen and a scribe, and we're going to see the significance of that momentarily. They go back, and second wave functions more. The temple was already built, sacrifice was reinstituted, but there were a lot of, from the beginning really until the end of the period, economic problems, social problems, political difficulties. There were people, as we're going to see, that wanted to join the community that the leaders felt did not belong in the community, and they tried to send letters back and prevent the building of the temple, prevent... Essentially, Nehemiah, what he does is to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, which, as you would imagine, has both practical but also metaphorical significance. Okay? That, broadly speaking, is the two waves of return that take place in the period that we broadly call Shivat Zion. Now, in order to answer the question, really, though, about Ezra that we asked, we have to go back and remember something very, very important when it comes to talking about Tanakh and really learning Tanakh, especially when we talk about Tanakh and use the word history at the same time. And I think that one of the most important things we need to remember is that when we talk about history through, as it's told through Tanakh, um, is that as we all know, really, there is no such thing as a comprehensive history. Right? History is a human construct. We talk about periods in history. Periods in history means we choose an arbitrary event to mark the beginning of a period and an arbitrary event to mark another. Some other person could come and say, that's not where the period began or ended. History really, rather than being a complete and comprehensive reflection of reality, history is, and we all know this to be true, a reflection of the primary concerns, questions, uh, issues of the person writing about events that happened in the past. Right? Take anyone, right, and, and again, I'm, I'm sitting here in the gush, so this is a perfect example, okay? Take someone writing about the Six-Day War in August 1967, read a book about the Six-Day War, in the mid-80s. No, I'm saying, give them two months to write a book, you know. Uh, <laughs> you have someone writing a book in <clears throat> before the Oslo Accords and after the Oslo Accords. It's the same event. It's the same war. The facts of the war have not changed. But everything about the way we perceive things from our history changes based on the new lenses that are put in front of our eyes. And those lenses are primarily impacted by the events that we are currently struggling with. 
Right? The irony about history is that it speaks more to our present realities and our hopes for the future than it does oftentimes about what actually happened. Okay? I'm going to give you two quick examples, people that are contemporaneous with Ezra Nehemiah, just to get a sense of what I'm talking about, and then we're going to jump into the Sefer itself. If you look in Chagai Zechariah, uh, you have Chagai Perek Aleph. Now, Chagai Zechariah were the last of the Nevi'im. Chagai Zechariah and Malachi were the last of the prophets, and they were giving prophecy to the Jewish people in the early years when B'nai Yisrael had come back from the, from the exile. And their job really, okay, there was a lot of apathy, there was a lot of drag and a lot of uh, lag when it came to rebuilding the Beit HaMikdash. And in fact, even though they were sent back in 539, the Beit HaMikdash was not built until 516. There was a lot of apathy. And one of the things that's fascinating is that if you compare the way Chagai talks about the delay in the building of the Beit HaMikdash, Chagai blames it on the people that were undermining their efforts, what we call correctly or not today the Shomronim. Right? If you look in Ezra Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah don't blame. Excuse me, I go back a second. Chagai Zechariah tried to inspire the people and say, the reason things are taking so long, the reason you're suffering economically, the reason you have no food to feed your children is because you, and they invoke the language, if you recall from David HaMelech when he built his own palace, they say, you're sitting there, you're living in your homes, you're putting up wallpaper and you're worrying about wall-to-wall carpeting, but the Beit HaMikdash has not been built. Because that's the role of a Navi. A Navi is meant to inspire people. But if we fast forward and we read Ezra Nehemiah's take on issues, Ezra Nehemiah is writing history through the perspective of enabling the people to move on. Ezra Nehemiah, don't blame the people. Ezra Nehemiah say, we know you want to, and it's the people undermining your efforts, and we need to confront them through political maneuvers. Okay? And so you have, again, the two events. Both were talking about economic struggle, both were talking about the delay in building the Beit HaMikdash, but cause and effect are reversed because the Nevi'im have one message and the political leaders have another. Okay? I'll give you one other quick example. If you open up, I said before Chagai, uh, Chagai Aleph, we're going to jump to Chagai Bet. Okay? Chagai says as follows. Now, um, there were institutions that, were that when the first Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, Right? The, first, the major institutions that existed in the first temple period were the temple, the institution of Nivim, of prophets, and Kohanim, right? excuse me, and the king. Okay? When we got back, we rebuilt a temple, we had the Kohanim. What was missing? Well, Nivim, we were still on the cusp, Chagai is a Navi. We didn't have a king. Okay, so the question is, you are a Navi. You are prophesizing to the people that wanted everything from the first temple period to be restored. Chagai says as follows to his audience in approximately 521 BCE. Perak bet pasuk chaf at the end of that parak. Vayidvar Hashem shenit al Chagai be'etzrim ba'arba alechodesh lemor. And more el Zerubavel. Go to Zerubavel, who was Pachat Yehuda, the governor. Lemor ani marish et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. Ve'afachti kisei mamlachot. Ve'ishmadeti chozek mamlachot ha'goyim. If we're going to use a fancy term here, this is eschatological. These are early messianic stirrings. What we want, the reality we're looking for, we want hegemony, we want to be independent and sovereign in our own land. We're frustrated we don't have a king. So the Navi is stirring up hopes for 
a completely alternate reality where all the nations are going to come crumbling down and we will once again have a king. That's 520. Fast forward to the mid-400s. And now Ezra and Achami are looking around and the reality of a Davidic king being restored really doesn't look like it's in the cards anytime soon. And so now Ezra does something different. If you look in Ezra, oh, you have it on your sheets. Sorry, I made a pretty little chart for you and I forgot to use it. Ezra Perak Aleph, the bottom corner of those charts, Ezra says as follows. And then he outlines the letter that Koresh wrote for the Jewish people. Ezra does not see Koresh as a leader or a tyrant that he's hoping will come crumbling down so that we can make room for the Davidic king. Ezra, in the mid-400s, sees Koresh as an emissary of God, as a malach of God in history. He sees Koresh as God's hand that enables B'nai Israel to go back and build the temple. Okay? Again, it's not a question of which is right and which is wrong and which is fact and which... It's never about that. The question we always ask when we're studying Tanakh is, what does this author want us to understand? What was Haggai hoping we would hold out hopes for in the restoration of? And what did the author of Ezra understand? We need to accept as a reality and learn a new way to contend with that reality and shape the way he speaks about Koresh so that his listeners, his audience, can respond appropriately. Okay? All that by way of super long-winded introduction. When we get back to Ezra, there was one major, major crisis in the day of Ezra. And again, I mentioned... Socio, sociologically, it was difficult. Economically, it was difficult. Politically, things were oftentimes in flux. But the biggest crisis, and when I say big, I mean in terms of how much space it takes up in the Sefer, is the issue of intermarriage. Okay? Ezra is leader, and majority of the people that were living in the land of Israel that went back were marrying non-Jewish women. Okay? And by the way, this is the first time in history where, we call, where we're called Jews and not Israelites. Because we are part of the Persian Judean province. That's why Mordechai Yehudi is the first time we use that term. We are now living in the land. But the men that are coming back that are supposed to be rebuilding the Beit HaMikdash are marrying non-Jewish women. And if you look inside Ezra, you can open up now to Ezra Perektet. We see, I'm going to start with Perektet Pasu Gimel. Ezra's talking about how the people were coming and saying, Ezra, there's this crisis. No one is marrying Jewish women. He's, he's literally or, or, or sort of symbolically pulling his hair out. Ezra's actually behaving very much like some of the first temple prophets with these very dramatic displays of frustration with the people. The people come to him and they say, Ezra, everyone is intermarrying. He has a very long, dramatic display of how horrible this is. And then he goes on, and for the rest of the parak, he utters a tefillah from the depths of his soul. A tefillah that's actually similar to the tefillot we find in Sefer Daniel. Very similar way that the leaders in this period evoke prayer. And if you go to Parak Yud, one of the things that we find, which is surprising, in the very next parak, are the draconian measures that Ezra employs to get rid of these foreign women. Okay, and so go, for example, Perak Yud Pasuk Gimel. 
He says, Not only do these men have to kick their wives out of the house, they also have to kick their children out. Now, to be very, very clear, and this is for a separate time because it's way off topic, matrilineal descent was not yet in place. Until this point in history, you are considered... This has nothing to do with if your mother is Jewish, if your father is Jewish, that was way later on, later, probably late Second Temple period, if not just right after. But Ezra is saying, anyone who's married to a non-Jew, get her out of the house and get any children from that union out of the house. Okay, this is A, again, very, very harsh. But B, if we think about what intermarriage meant in biblical times, also unprecedented, Okay. If you go, if we think about what intermarriage meant in Tanakh, intermar- we are prohibited from marrying very specific categories of women. We, Israelite men. You are not allowed to marry from the Shiva Mekanaan. And the Torah makes very clear in Shmot Perak Lamed Dalid, Pasuk Tet Vav, that intermarriage is an extension of, or the ban on intermarriage, is an extension of the ban in making any sort of treaty that would enable us to coexist with the Canaanites, and then it goes without saying, ultimately start worshipping their gods and living the lifestyles that God had prohibited. So in Parak Lamedal in Shmo Pasuk Tetvav, it says, Pentichrod Brit Liyoshev Ha'aret, Vizanu Acharei Eloheihem, etc., etc. And I just read you the wrong pasuk. If you go uh, <laughs> back up to... Yes, no, I read you the wrong parak altogether. Okay, I'm going to say it by the just to save us a couple of minutes. Parak Lamedalet in Zvarim. Intermarriage is an extension of the prohibition to coexist with the Shiva Amekanaan for fear of cultural diffusion. That was it. Then there's another two additional nations we're not allowed to marry, and that is Ammon and Moab, because everything about them and the moral fabric of their society just undermines everything God wants of his people. How do we know that intermarriage wholesale was not prohibited? We're not allowed to marry the Shiva Mekanan, and we're not allowed to marry from Ammon and Moab. But what happens if a man is out at war and we're not fighting ourselves, if a man is out at war against another nation and he finds a woman and he falls in love with her, correct, he has to go through all of the protocol in order to marry her, but there is nowhere in Tanakh where it says anyone that is not from Zerah Avraham is banned. The Tanakh is very clear, Shiva Mekanan, Amon and Moab, and that is it. So now fast forward to the mid-400s and Ezra is saying anyone that cannot trace themselves genealogically back to us is outlawed. Where is that coming from? So some people actually argue that the um, ban was actually taking into consideration the economic realities of the day. Uh, There are scholars that talk about the role of Persian women or women within the Persian Empire and that for one of the first times in history women were enfranchised and able to own land. And so the fear, again, the pragmatic fear, was that if the Persian or the, the women that had been living there that were not considered Israelite were owning land, that would affect the land tenures of the Jews that had gone back and affect who owns majority of the land, physically speaking. But I think that there's something else going on and something a lot more profound. 
Ezra's being confronted in this period with perhaps one of the most important questions that surfaces and resurfaces throughout history without exception. In the first biblical, in, in the first biblical period, or the, excuse me, the first temple period, what defines a person who is considered part of the Israelite community? <coughs> if you look through Tanakh, you will see. If you live within the boundaries of the land, then by definition you're obligated to respect the mitzvot lotase. You are going to live according to the laws of the land. Again, a lot of this was hypothetical and didn't actually come into play, but it doesn't matter. We're speaking about theoretical definitions of who is part of the community. And in the first temple period, you are considered a part of the Israelite community if you live within the geographical boundaries of the land and respect the rule of the land. And there's no such thing as separation between church and state. And so by definition, the rules of the land are the rules of the Torah. You have to respect laws of purity, and you can't murder, and you can't worship idols, etc. For the first time in Jewish history, we have a problem. Because now we have a nice little minority of Jews that came back to the land of Israel, and they would be considered by First Temple standards Jews, but we also have majority of the Jewish nation living in Babel. And don't forget about the people that ran down to Egypt with Yirmiyahu after the, after the murder of Gedaliah. And so now Ezra is looking out and he says, hold on a second. If the definition of who is an Israelite is who lives within the land, we are going to end up with a lot of different nations. And that's untenable. And so for the first time in the early Second Temple period, we start to use genealogy as the definitive factor. Okay? Now, that being said, the question that we have to ask, okay, or that I think really strikes us is, why is this topic of intermarriage taking up so much space? Right? Whenever Sefer has topics in it, so we know for the most part, right, Yeshayahu is dealing with the issue of Avodah Zarah, and we know that it's because the people were not listening to him and still worshiping Avodah Zarah. The prophets that were giving prophecy to the north were dealing with corruption and they were dealing with the, the uh, sort of unequal distribution of wealth and the persecution of the poor. And they keep saying it and rehashing it over and over because no one was listening and because they had to make their point. And I think on the superficial level, that's perhaps the most obvious reason. Ezra keeps talking about the issue of intermarriage. It comes up in Tet, it comes up in Yud, it comes up again at the end, because it was never really fixed or dealt with completely in his day. But I think that there's something else going on, and I think that if we look at the topic of intermarriage, it actually holds the clue to everything that Ezra is about, and goes back to answer our question about why Chazal revere him in the way that they do. Okay? And in order to understand this, oh, now you could go back to your second pretty chart. Let me do another pretty little chart on your source sheets. Everything Ezra was doing in his day is based on the topic of purity. Okay? Now, when we talk about purity and impurity, we think primarily, if I say impurity and I say free associate, okay, so a lot of people are going to start, right, throw out words, you're going to say tumat me, tumat me da, tumat zav, we're going to start throwing out lots of different terminology, and if I could venture a guess, majority of the people in this tent are going to throw out a term that relates to ritual impurity, okay? Ritual impurity is what you have in your charts on that first, on the right-hand side, okay? Ritual impurities... You see, for example, in Vayikra, 
Hashem says to Moshe and Aharon, he starts listing the animals that were not allowed to eat. Etc., etc. Jump down to Pasuk Hey. Certain animals are Tamei. And if you go down a little bit further in that same chart, we have things like certain skin ailments. Sarat will render someone ritually impure. If you come in contact with the dead, if you have a normal bodily emission, all of those things render you ritually impure. Now, one of the most complicating things about impurity, and actually, if anyone is interested, Jonathan Clowens is, is probably the leader in the thought about this topic now, and he says he bases much of his, um, really, I think, chidushim, on the work by Rav David Tzvi Hoffman on Sefer Vayikra, where he distinguishes between the two types of impurity that for a very, very long time, and we're going to see why today, were misunderstood as one and the same. Ritual impurity is as follows. Bodily emissions, anything natural that happens to the body over time, renders someone ritually impure. Now, you're ritually impure for a very finite amount of time. There's a way to undo it. And most importantly, there's nothing sinful about becoming ritually impure. If anything, certain mitzvot, burying the dead, having children, obligate us to become ritually impure. There's no human being on this planet that could remain ritually pure their entire life. Okay? The only thing that happens with ritual impurity that you need to be careful of is because it stands in opposition to purity, you cannot go near the Beit HaMikdash. You have to stay outside of, and in the Midbar would have been the entire Ol Moed. That's what ritual impurity is. There's a second type of impurity that we don't think about and we don't talk about as much. That's, I would say, equally, perhaps, if not more important. Okay, look at the second port columns on your charts. <clears throat> and this is very typical, right? We distinguish ourselves. We are not them and we are not them. Right? We are not like the people we are leaving. We are not like the people we are going to. We are unique. And our uniqueness is always distinguished right, in opposition to. And Hashem starts listing all of the things that the people of Mitzrayim and the people of Kinnaan did that created an impurity in the land. And if you look inside Pasuk, for example, uh, in, the second, in the second one of those paragraphs, and you jump down to the next one, Hashem warns us. This is coming after the list of arayot. Okay? Things like murder, things like incest, things like unethical behaviors engender a tum'ah that's not contracted by the body, but that the land somehow absorbs. It has a polluting effect on the land. And there's an implicit warning. When we get to the land, we better not murder, and we better be ethical, moral people. Why? Because The reason the people that lived in the land before us are getting kicked out, We think very often 
of the land as just something we step on, right? Or that in theory we talk about it, I think, as something we can buy or own. Or The land is an animate creation of God. And the land allows us to live here if we earn the right by behaving in a way that earns our existence on the land. We are not immune from the land spitting us out, just like it spits out anyone that came before us that oversaturated it with immoral, unethical behaviors. Okay? It's perhaps one of the most important principles in Tanakh that I think because we were exiled for so long, we forgot and we need to get back in touch with. Okay? The moral impurity here is something that is not... How do we know, by the way? Think of an example. How do we know that someone who is considered, who has done something morally impure is not banned from the Beit HaMikdash? If I, if I murder someone, can I go to the Beit HaMikdash? Whereas an Isha Sota, who is suspected adulteress, is brought to the Beit HaMikdash. Moral impurity is not something that's contagious in the same way that Tumat Mate or Tsarat is. Moral impurity is absorbed by the land, and when the land can no longer tolerate it, it spits us out. There's one day a year where we have the opportunity, the Kohen Gadol goes into the Beit HaMikdash, and if you read Perak when you get to Yom Kippur this year, and you sit there during Torah reading, instead of conking out for five minutes, pay attention very, very carefully to the words in Vayikra, where the Kohen sprinkles the blood of the sacrifices all over the temple to purify the temple from the moral impurity that has been absorbed by our behaviors. Okay? Ritual impurity, moral impurity. Now, go back for one second to Ezra's description of what the people were doing wrong when he got back to the land. Okay, go back to Parakhet for one second. Now, Ezra is perhaps the first example of a Jewish leader, and we've mentioned this in terms of defining who is a Jew, but we're going to see here a Jewish leader who is confronted with the dialectic of the fixed immutable word of God as defining what our behaviors and what our life should look like, and then needing to confront unprecedented realities. Ezra could not utilize the old definition of intermarriage or the old definition of who is a Jew because then we wouldn't have ended up with the Jewish people. We would have ended up with lots of little minorities scattered around the world. And so look in Perak Ted in Ezra, and I'm just going to mention a couple of really important words here that jump out at us in the text. is an abominable behavior which engenders moral impurity. Okay? But then if we read a little bit further, go to Pasuk Bet, he says, He's speaking now about mixing of Kodesh, holy, and everyone else. Mi'ila is a term that is reserved for the Beit HaMikdash, right? Mi'ila is if I see a cow walk in front of my window and I say, that cow, I'm going to bring that as a sacrifice next Monday, I can turn around and decide Sunday night that I want to make a barbecue and use that cow because that has been designated as Kodesh. Anything designated as Kodesh cannot be used as whole. 
But that's ritualistic terminology. We don't intermarry. To'eva and ma'al are two different terminologies. One refers to ritual impurity. One refers to moral impurity. And for the first time in history, Ezra is utilizing the text of the Torah, not just homiletically, but to create new legal categories. And he combines ritual and moral impurity and says it is both morally and ritually problematic to intermarry. And in that way bans not only the seven, the seven nations which no longer exist, but anyone that would be an improper mixture with Zerah Kodesh. And if you look down a little bit further in there, you'll see there are other examples. He uses the word, for example, Pasuk Yud, is ritual impurity. But again, Ezra is invoking simultaneously ritual and moral impurity, conflating the two categories, and in doing so, creating new halachic prohibitions. Okay? Now question that we want to look at, or the question going back really to the question is, why is it that that was problematic, right? First of all, not everybody listened. And if you remember, we said in the beginning, much of the Second Temple literature was not favorable. The Tobiad family, which we later hear about in Jewish history in the Hasmonean period, were staunch opponents of Ezra. And the question is, why is that? Why is what Ezra did so problematic if we now know what he was doing was really staving off an existential crisis. So again, in order to understand that, I think that one of the things we need to go back and remember is that up until this point in history, there was a very, there was very specific protocol if you had halachic questions. Okay? And if you look just by way of example, um, you can look, for example, in Devarim Parakid Zayim, Deuteronomy 17, says as follows. Pasuk, we're going to start with Pasuk Chet. Ki palemim chadavar lamishpat vein dam le dam vein din le din uvein nega le nega divrei rivot b'sharachat. Listing all types of questions, those that are associated with the temple itself and also other, other ish, civic issues that might arise. Vikamta, what do you do? There's no local Orthodox rabbi. Vikamta v'alita el hamakom asher yivchar Hashem elokecha bo. You are going to go up to Jerusalem, to the epicenter, Uvata el hakohanim halevim el hashofet asher yiyeh bayamim haheim vidarashta vigidu lecha et var hamishpat. You go and you ask the kohen, the cultic figureheads, what you are supposed to do in this case. They will decide halachically, and the shofet will enforce it. And if you jump to the very next parak, we see in parak Yud Chet, for example. Start with Pasuk Yud Gimel. Tamim tihiyem Hashem elokecha, ki hagoyim ha'ela asher ata yoresh otam el me'oninim ve'el kosmim ishma'u. The people that are being kicked out of the land before you, they go to sorcerers and they go to magicians. You, you have a different resource. You have a resource that is the mouthpiece of God. Pasuk Tedvav, navi mikirbecha me'achecha kamoni this is Moshe speaking. Hashem will give you prophets. You don't have to go to sorcerers and magicians and people who are going to perform ecstasy. You can go to a Navi who will be given the message directly from God. Okay? 
Now fast forward back, and by the way, there's indications in the days of Haggai and Zechariah that they were still going to Nevi'im and to Kohanim when questions would arise. But fast forward now to the days of Ezra. Ezra looks back at Jewish history. You imagine Matan Torah the first time around, and I think this is in perhaps what Chazal had in mind when they equate the way that Ezra gave the Torah versus the way that the Torah was given the first time around. The first time around, there's kolot, and there's brachim, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and it was overwhelming physical experience, physical and spiritual experience, and Moshe came down, and the people were solely dependent on Moshe to give over the word of God. God spoke to Moshe, and Moshe will repeat to the people what he heard. They were so dependent on him that when he disappeared and they miscalculated, it was all lost. Everything fell to pieces because they were so dependent on that one singular leader that they did not feel empowered enough to go on in his absence. Fast forward to the end of the first temple period. You have Yoshiahu. We have all of the revolutions where people were trying to clean out the Beit HaMikdash and rid the land of, of Abu Dazara. But as soon as that one king died, as soon as the era of that king that was leading the religious revolution was over, the people went right back to where they started. Ezra turns during his period and he realizes a number of things. He realizes, first of all, practically speaking, Nivuah is over. Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi were over a hundred years before the work of Ezra, more than that perhaps even, before the work of Ezra is being written. We no longer have mouthpieces. We no longer have someone walking through the streets saying, Ko Amar Hashem, and we can believe him that he is legitimately bringing over the word of God. Nivuah is gone. Kihuna, we're going to see, Ezra in many ways marginalizes. Now, by the way, for the record, Ezra was, was both a Kohen Gadol, but he is referred to, his epithet is, as a Sofer. Ezra marginalizes the role of the Kohen. There's no longer a king. Ezra is reimagining what Jewish religion will look like in the absence of and with the marginalization or the peripheralizing of institutions that were once so central to the people's everyday religious existence. But Ezra needed to do that because he understood that if he doesn't reimagine what the Jewish people will look like in his day, as it refers to who is a Jew, what intermarriage looks like, and as we're going to see perhaps most importantly, how the Jewish people remain educated, he understood that there was no hope for the people. And so what I want to do is I want to go inside now to Perak Chet in, in Nehemiah and look at how Ezra reimagined Matan Torah. And again, bear in mind what Chazal said when they compared Moshe and Ezra. So uh, Nehemiah Perak Chet, we're going to start with Pasuk Aleph. Vayayasu kol ha'am ki'ishachad. And again, it's not coincidental. The author of Ezra is clearly... Right, invoking terminology from Matan Torah so that we as audience are implicitly comparing the two in our minds as we read. Where, if there is a temple built, would you imagine, if this were earlier in history, Ezra should be re-giving the Torah? We would imagine it would all be going into the Beit HaMikdash. Ezra chooses to do it outside of the precinct. Vayomru le'ezra ha'sofer. There's that epithet. Ezra is known as a scribe. 
להביא את ספר תורת משה אשר ציווה השם את ישראל. The perfect balance here is that as creative and as revolutionary as Ezra is being, there are no illusions that what he is doing is a direct continuation from everything that came before. He is bringing the Torah of Moshe that God gave to the people. Vayavi Ezra ha-kohen et ha-Torah lefnei ha-kahal me-ish va-adisha. He brings the Torah and Excuse me, I have to mention, 5th century BCE, women were learning Torah right alongside everybody else. And then they begin to read. They start in the morning. Anyone who is interested, crowded around Ezra, and then Pasuk Dalet Ezra gets up and it says, Vayamod Ezra HaSofer al Migdal Eitz Asher Asu Ladavar. He's not standing, there's no pomp and circumstance. The Nevi'im warns about what all of the pomp and circumstance associated with the institution of kingship can lead to, and it did. Ezra's standing on a little plank of wood or a little box that it says that they made for the occasion. You imagine Ezra starts speaking and teaching and people are in the back are screaming, we can't hear you. So they bring a piece of wood over. There's no pomp and circumstance because the reverence are for the words being taught, not for the charismatic personality giving them over. And it lists all of the people that are standing around him because Ezra is simultaneously educating the masses and appointing people to be able to do what he's doing and continue this chain. And he unfurls the Torah in front of everyone. Perhaps most importantly, I think one of the biggest mistakes uh, we sometimes make is to assume that the more accessible the Torah is, and this was a debate for probably many years in Jewish history, talked to the people that, in, that, that created the whole art scroll, that the more access or the more accessible Torah is to us, the less reverence we have. And Ezra is saying the exact opposite. Ezra is saying, give the people an opportunity to connect. Give them a people opportunity to connect to the words of God. And as soon as they see it being opened up, their immediate, initial, impulsive reaction is to stand up and get up on their feet. And, Ash- and Ezra goes on, Vayivarech Ezra et Hashem ha'elokim ha'gadol, Vayanu kol ha'am, amen, amen. We're going to get back to that in one second. I think that if we look at Ezra, and we look at the innovations that he instituted in his time, the question we asked really was, why is it not just that Ezra wasn't popular in his day, but why is it that Ezra was so unpopular in his day and so popular in retrospect? What we need to realize is that what Ezra was wrestling with were unprecedented realities and the unprecedented system of going back to the text of the Torah, the divine words themselves, and utilizing those words as a springboard for halachic innovation in a way that can enable the people to remain religiously loyal to the original halacha. One of the things, but again, goes without saying, that he was not popular in his day because he was peripheralizing many of the old institutions. The Kohanim, the Tabayid family, were not big fans of Ezra. Neither were many of the other people that felt that he was undermining a system that had existed for so long. But if we fast forward, after the high priesthood becomes one of the most corrupt institutions in Israel in the late Second Temple period, 
And then after the temple itself was destroyed, that thing that anchored the Jewish people for so long no longer existed. We no longer had an epicenter. We no longer had a necessity for Kohanim. We clearly no longer had a king and clearly no longer had Nivuah. It was Ezra that had the foresight to redefine what Torah learning and what accessibility of Torah looks like for the masses that enabled the Jewish people to continue. Ezra, for lack of a better term, is a proto-rabbi. He is really the one that set the groundwork for what Chazal in the Mishnah and the Gemara and everything that happens in the aftermath of the Bar Kokhba revolt was able to accomplish based on his precedent. So in his day, revolutionaries are rarely popular, but in retrospect in Jewish history, we can appreciate just how profound what he accomplished is. I'm going to finish with one of my favorite psukim in the Sefer. And I think that for any of us that think seriously about what education and what chinuch for the next generation looks like, I think this pasuk holds the key. One of the things that happened is as they were learning, as the people were becoming more educated, they started to cry. Because here they were reading, we see at the end of this parak, they read about the halachot of Sukkot, and they realized that a sukkah had not been built in, this, in Jerusalem since the days of Yoshua bin Nun. And they're reading one halacha after the next, and they start to cry because they realize that they are nowhere near where they want to be or where God expects them to be. And again, compare Ezra's reaction to the harsh, punitive, authoritarian experiences of the Jewish people until this point, and look at what Ezra says in Pasuk Tet. Uh, it's still Parakhet, Pasuk Tet. Vayomer nechem yahu hatir shata, ve'ezra ha-kohen v'halivim they're speaking now to the entirety of the nation. It is a cumulative, comprehensive experience for everyone. No one is left out. Guys, you're standing around. You're sitting here. You're learning Torah. Today is a holy day. Don't cry. Because they were starting, as I mentioned, to mourn. And the leaders say to them, Go out and eat candy and enjoy. Send out gift baskets to your friends. Spread joy. Don't be sad. And I'm going to loosely translate because your strength comes from a joyous relationship with God. Ezra and Ephemia could have turned around and yelled at the people and rebuked them and told them they're not where they want to be, but that's not what they did because they understood that the most empowering Jewish experience is allowing the people to access the text and connect with the text in the way that they know how. And how do we know that they were successful? Jump down to Pasuk. Yud Bet Uvayom Hashemi Neesu Rashei Havot Lechol Ha'am Hakohanim Vealeviim El Ezra Hasofer Ula Haskil El Divrei HaTorah. We know their strategy worked because the next day everyone came back. I think that Jewish history is filled with cataclysmic changes and little changes along the way. I think that if there's one thing that Ezra sort of set the bar for, that Chazal, again, in retrospect, understand, has shaped the way that we approach Judaism today, 
It's that we have to both somehow find the balance to be able to simultaneously hold on to the rigidity and the fixed, unalterable nature of the text, and at the same time be elastic enough to work within the system to enable us to react to and respond to and to deal with current unprecedented realities of our day. That's what Ezra did in his day. It's why people may not have loved him, but it's why in retrospect we appreciate Judaism still exists because of him. And I think that if we're able to do that and communicate it, perhaps most importantly, as they said, through joy, then I think that we can look forward to many, many thriving, dynamic years of a Jewish future. And thank you for coming. Have a great day.